right. Hey, John, why don't you wrap this up for us? Let Mr. Uh, Mr. DeStefano um, or DeStefano. Wow. However you want to say it, man. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. DeStefano is fine. It's, uh, we pronounce it DeStefano, but. Yeah. Well, we want to be correct. So it's Des- DeStefano. DeStefano. <laughs> Someone called me uh, one time, uh, some, some fundamentalist troll called me Matthew Dysentery. I was like, that's, wow. that's not wow. even an attempt, bro. Like, come on, man. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to uh, This Is Not Church podcast. I am here with my brother, as always, Nat. Say hello, Nat. Hello. <laughs> See, I didn't do it this time, so, so I there know. you go. We're not, yeah, we're not I'm not falling anymore. for your trap again, man. <laughs> but uh, today we are we are lucky enough to have with us Matthew DiStefano. Uh, Matthew DiStefano is the author of multiple best-selling books, including Heretic and From the Blood of Abel and The Bonfire Sessions. He is the co-host of two podcasts, The Heretic Happy Hour and The Bonfire Sessions. He's a longtime social worker and a hip-hop artist. He lives in Northern California with his wife and daughter. So thank you and welcome for coming on the podcast, Matthew. Yeah, happy to be here. If you don't know, um, if you don't know Matt, by the way, uh, can I call you Maddie? No, just kidding. I won't do that. You, um, you can call me whatever the fuck you want. Am I? Oh, am I allowed to cuss? Sorry. <laughs> oh, there will be a there will be a cuss jar. Oh, okay. For every, uh, okay. For every iterance, uh, we just add five bucks to your Patreon pledge. So you know. Oh, to, you may, to mine? Oh, yeah. You <laughs> may, no, no, man, that came out wrong. No, no, no. no I'm, I'm trying to discourage. Okay, so oh, but if oh, you oh. don't if you don't know if you don't know Matt, you should get to know him. He's a He's a brilliant guy. I know he will blush when I say that, or maybe he won't, but um, he really is a a jack of all trades, has a a width and breadth of knowledge about all kinds of stuff. And I actually became aware of Matt when I first started kind of diving into mimetic theory. Uh, I think we might have been in a Facebook group together or two um, where we discussed Rene Girard and things like that. And um, anyway, just for me, it was a time of kind of drinking from the fire hose on a lot of stuff and causing me to reconsider a lot, which is the whole point, is it not? I mean, isn't that what repentance is all about, is the changing of our minds? And so I want to jump right in because one of the things that was foundational for me, and we talked about this with Keith Giles yesterday, um, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So with KG? KG. We talked about this with, with, with KG a bit. I like to give nicknames. Um, so uh, I, I was going to ask him once if KG, I could just short it to kilogram and that, that made it longer. So never mind. Um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but we did talk to him about atonement. And one of the things that first began to unravel for me um, was atonement, especially a violent atonement. And so I wanted to just jump off with you uh, on the topic of violence, because you start your book out, really, isn't it all about violence? Haven't, isn't all of this that we're dealing with the result of violence on some level? So I just that's a very broad question, but I thought I'd throw it out to you and see what you what you had. Yeah, well. Um... Yeah, Keith just wrote a book on atonement, and it was really good. Um, so yeah, I mean, well, from the blood of Abel focuses on violence specifically, and I get I get into it on heretic um, a little bit just because um, I'm covering different topics that that Christians ask me about, and and violence is a big one. It's funny in the Christian church we uh, we denounce violence of other religions, yet so much of our theology is imbued with violence, and 
And I don't know how it is in the East. I'm sure there's some, but at least in the West, like our atonement theory is laden with violence. I mean, you can't, you can't really separate the, um, what happens on the cross of which part is God and which part is Rome. And, and I've, I've always found that really, really strange. Um, you know, if you try to parse it out, well, is the flogging just Rome, but the cross still needed to happen. And, um, it just gets really wonky. And so I'm glad Keith and and others are writing books about atonement and why that model of how we're reconciled to God, because that's all atonement means. I mean, if you break up the word and you want to do it this way at one minute, how are we at one with God? If it requires violence and bloodshed, this is what I've deconstructed to the point where I, I don't need God. We're totally capable of all of that stuff on our own. We don't need a violent deity any any longer because it's like, what's the difference between our sacrificial systems and putting people on the altar and scapegoating others when God is just like that? Yeah, it's no different than tossing virgins in volcanoes, right? I see no difference. I mean, you know, the, the Calvinists and people like that will come back and say, well, it's God who tosses himself into the volcano because you have the Trinity and you have God the Father and God the Son. It's like, wow, we've totally stripped the son of his actual humanity, if, if we talk in those terms, like this dude suffered a horrific death that humans are totally capable of. We don't need God to do that. Right, right. I saw something on a desiring God. Um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. somebody had reposted this meme. <laughs> I, I shudder every time I think of I feel like every time I say, every time I say John Piper's name, a puppy gets kicked. So, um, yeah, if, if not killed, <laughs> if not killed, but, and then he says, glory to God. Um, but yes. the, it was a simple little, you know, this little three word or three sentence statement says saved from God by, oh, yeah. by God. For God. for God. And it was yeah. like the, the amens were like, woo, you know, right. it was just like and, sickening to me. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm over here about yeah. to puke my guts up, but talk about that. Well, I mean, that's, that's the atonement theory wrapped up in a nutshell for Calvinists. And I'm like, it should be hashtag Stockholm syndrome. I mean, come on. Right. You know, it's, it's like, it's like in Beauty and the Beast when when uh, Belle falls in love with her captor and everyone's like, oh, what a love story. Yeah. like, Holy crap. Like, like, no, this no, is horrific. No, please get your ass out of there. What is going on? Like, come on now. Make you want to take your daughter and drop her off at some mysterious castle and yeah. just hope she finds her true love. Yes. I mean, and, and, and we'll, and we'll praise him. We'll praise him when he lets you, when he lets you leave and you can go tend to my, you know, the fact that I'm dying on the side of the road, however the story goes. Well, and it was weird because, you know, what it, what it caused for me and, you know, on the heels of some of this, I had read, um, I, I remember reading Brian Zahn's book, Farewell to Mars. Right. And, and I was embarrassed, you know, on, on one level because I'm, you know, at the time I'm 35 or 36 years old, maybe. And, uh, I'm like, man, I have just followed along with this theology my whole life. It hasn't not become this burning question. And uh, when you become aware of it and how much of that has permeated your thoughts and how much of it has permeated your image of God, it's like, it's a little sickening. Um, And as you strip that away, um, sometimes you're left with, okay, well then what? So if not this, and and obviously um, um, violence is a reality we have to contend with, but in what way, if at all, does mimetic theory help us deal with the problem of violence? Well, I mean, I, 
to me, it's it's a part of the uh, the diagnosis. It's not it's not the it doesn't have the entire explanatory power of everything. It's not a theory of everything, but right, for me, for it, sure. it does a couple things. It, it it gets to the root of our desire, which I think is important. I think it's important to realize where our desires come from. They're not autonomous, as Kant uh, wrongly argued. Our will is not like complete spontaneity. We're tied up to others. We we pick up on the desires of others, and this does lead to rivalry and conflict. It's pretty clear. Put two kids in a room with a bunch of toys, and they will fight, no matter how many toys are in there. Or we'll do it on Black Friday. You know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it, it helps to get to the root of diagnosing something by pointing to what it is. I also think it, it helps us theologically. It's not necessarily theology per se, but it's like apophatic. It's theology through negation. And, and it, it helps to say, uh, God is not that. This is why we say God is that, whatever that is. And that is us. So we're projecting onto God. And then when, when right, we can right. acknowledge that, no, that violence is our violence, that sacrifice system is our sacrifice system, it, 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 it's, it's almost theology through negation. And so then we can really get to know God without, of our, without our shitty suppositions. Well, that, that goes, I mean, I, I, like with anything, you know, when something is new and shiny, you kind of go, oh, this explains everything, right? right? So yeah, I did, sure. you know, there... I think we've all gone through that that process of like, okay, well now Gerard is actually wrapped up. Man, it just makes it's a neat tidy bow. It all makes sense. I still I, I see it like you do. It's a it's a tool in the toolbox. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And and it's a good tool. I mean, you need a hammer, yeah. right? So no. it's a definitely a yeah. handy tool. There's some other things. I think I think Ernest Becker um had some great insights into discussing uh our death anxiety, the neurosis we have about our own mortality. And so that's why when I, you know, when I wrote from the blood of Abel, I didn't just say like, oh, mimetic theory explains it all. No, I think there's something to our own demise and like creating our systems of immortality that then um, cause us to have conflict with, you know, Muslims and Christians, Jews and and Muslims and Christians and um, whatever, Catholics and Protestants, and why we everybody. why we fight so much. Yeah, everybody, every every system, conservative, Republican, um, metalhead, hip hop head. You know, I mean, like we fight over everything. <laughs> right, right. There was nobody in high school I hated more as a you know as a like a self proclaimed like punk skater guy than all those mainstream like like pop dudes you know there was all kinds of angry rivalry from the people who were how dare you wear your michael jackson shirt or your wham t-shirt to school when i'm 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 rocking the corrosion and conformity or whatever <laughs> you know it's like we can create rivalry <laughs> over everything yeah, we can create rivalry and there's there's my medic to that too because it's like for how punk like i i got into punk and stuff too but it was like you realize how conformed you are to that system of nonconformity. So it's it's quite yeah, ironic yeah. and almost like a catch twenty two. <laughs> yeah, I, I I remember telling Michelle when we talked and we talked briefly about this. I mean, really, just a couple of minutes. But I had to leave most of the Gerard groups. Um, yeah, because they became so mimetic. <laughs> it was <laughs> like Gerardians are some of the worst uh, flagrant. They're the worst. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're so you know they they. I remember reading the first time I read through. I think um, uh, seeing Satan fall like lightning. You know, and so there's. Yeah. You know, anyway, the notion that all of this really is is roiling beneath the surface at a subconscious level. And so um, to not notice it is is perfectly natural. It's all a subconscious uh, thing that we're that we're done. 
Um, and what mimetic theory does, I think, if it does anything at all, is help us root that out. At least just shine a bright light onto, okay, that's what's happening here. That's why I have these tendencies. But And it also, for me, spoke to some of the anthropology, which a lot of theology ignores completely, um, the human origins of religion, the human origins of all of this stuff, rather than everything being divine. Does that, does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah, it it. And it makes it, you know, if you're talking about just the Bible, it actually makes the Bible interesting because you're like, oh, there's a there's a human backstory here. There's suppositions that are already there before the Bible is even created. And it and it kind of reveals that and and unveils that. And then you're like, oh, this makes a lot more sense than all these yeah. wacky, weird laws that, that are in there that were like, I, I don't even under why is this even a part of quote unquote divine scripture? And you're like, oh, I get it now. It's a lot of it. A lot of it is speaking from a place of there's already human culture when the Bible is written. There's already laws and rituals and practices of sacrifice. And it speaks to that and pulls us away from certain presuppositions that we have about divinity or the gods or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I find that uh, um, that within the church at large that, that they don't want you to learn that. They don't want you to take a step back and look away from the Bible and actually find the humanity and the people that were living at that time. And I found that for me, when I was able to step away and, and look at it from that perspective, that the Bible became actually kind of interesting for, again, for a while. But, uh, <laughs> <For> a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, back to the, your, when we were talking about violence and the way we use the, like biblical violence to defend our violence, but specifically towards certain groups of people and how we can blindly just see, don't see that we are doing exactly the same thing that we are saying other, other religions do uh, towards, you know, people of color, towards the LGBTQ community. I mean, how are we so blinded to, like you said earlier, we can point out to other religions and see, okay, see their violence, see how they do this, see how they do that. But why are we so blinded to our own? I mean, Bob Dylan's got a great song with God on our side. We see our violence as kind of necessary. It's like we, our violence is the mediated violence that subdues unmediated violence. It's, it's, it's violence with restraint whereas their violence is violence that doesn't have restraint. So we need to use a little bit of force and violence in order to quell the out-of-control violence that the bad people would cause. Um, it's kind of like the good guy with a gun argument. The, the problem is, well, who's the good guy? It, it's always assumed that we are the good guy or you know, that the scapegoat that, the scapegoat that we blame our societal ills on well, you know, it leads to peace. You know, we can all get along and, and agree that that guy, whoever that guy is, the proverbial that guy is the bad guy. And, and, and when that happens, it's like, it's obvious that that guy was sent by God or the gods because it led to catharsis and it led to us being able to finally breathe again. So, you know, there's always a group that's kind of like us, but not really like us. So the LGBTQ community, they look like Americans, they act like Americans, they walk like Americans, but they're a little different. So we can easily scapegoat them and we can blame them for hurricanes and natural weather patterns like John Piper does. And um, thank God people are waking up to that bullshit. And, you know, when he spews his 
when he says things like, oh, lightning struck and burned down this LGBT event in Minneapolis or St. Paul, wherever it happened, there's congregates in his church who also had lightning strike their house and burn their house down. And people are starting to realize this model of, <laughs> of what God is like is bullshit. It's complete bullshit. It, it should have, we should have understood this like, you know, on all saints days and all saint days in, uh, uh, in 17 something when Lisbon had an earthquake and killed all the congregates. And then, a and then, a, a, a tsunami came and took the rest of them out on the beach. And it was a bunch of Christians who got killed. And, you know, we should have realized this is not how God operates. He's not on our side as opposed to their side. But were they real Christians? See, that's going to be the question now. See, maybe God was yeah. cleansing the yeah, church. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was tongue in cheek, but no, it's, uh, <laughs> it does, it does bring to, que- you know, it, it just, it should call into question that image of God that we have, you know, that says that God is holy. Therefore, everything he does is holy. So everything we've ascribed to him is now holy. And how dare we question? Yeah. Well, I mean, come on, let's, let's say that though. Why, why do you get to define holiness? Like, what, what do you mean by holy? I've always heard the Calvinists say that his ways are not our ways. Yeah. In the context, you know, that verse is in the context of his mercy. Exactly. You know, so it's, it's like, when you point that out to people, they don't want to, uh, they don't want, they don't want the context, man. Just, no. you know. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. What you're really saying is God's mercy is way better than you could ever imagine. There you and go. So, oh, wait a minute. His ways are not our ways. That means he can open up the earth and swallow a bunch of, you know, folks over there in Thailand. And we just don't care because they're not us. Yeah. And then they use that same bullshit line when you're, you're, a family member dies in a motorcycle accident because maybe they've been drinking, right? And you're like, I don't understand. Or, or it doesn't even have to be they were drinking. It's just a bad incident, right? And it's like, well, his ways are higher than our ways. You're not, you're not there to understand why, why he needed that person in heaven at this moment. And, you know, it's like, it's just, uh, it's just bullshit. <laughs> and my personal favorite is the house that burns down, kills the occupant inside, but the Bible is intact. And they're yeah. all like, praise God, praise God. He knows how to preserve his word. Didn't give a shit about the woman who died in the bed, but the Bible's intact, brother. The tornado was just a few days ago. It had there were three crosses, and it knocked down the two, but left up the middle one. Uh. Right, right. <laughs> I'm telling yeah. you, man, we are desperate for anything that explains the universe to us. Yeah, we, I mean, and, and I, I get that. Like, I totally get that. Like, human beings are designed to see patterns and to create meaning. I, I love the fact that when people ask me, "Is there a meaning to life?" I say, "No." Because the minute there's a meaning to life, that that kind of that that kind of diminishes the fact that there's infinite meaning to life. The problem is that we just we see cre- we we see these patterns where there aren't any, and that creates a lot of disenfranchisement and a lot of disillusionment with with an explanation of you know I, I think it all comes down to why why is there so much suffering in a world if God is powerful and God is good. And, and we all have these futile attempts to explain that. And most often, they just make things worse. Well, they always end in platitudes, don't they? That's all they are. I mean, it's just some, some kind of attempt to kind of salve the wound. But right. um, yeah, so as, as we begin to then dismantle this notion of violence, um, what has that done or what does that do to your understanding of Scripture in particular? Um, do you even try anymore to uh, reconcile the violence of the Old Testament with the revelation of of God in Christ that we see all of someone like Greg Boyd or something where they're trying to say, hey, listen, let's find some reconciliation between these two seemingly disparate things. 
Um, no, I don't really worry about it. This is what this is what uh, a lot of Christians can't handle with any approach like this. Is that I'm totally comfortable with uncomfortable parts of the Bible, because um, as Gerard argues, the Bible is a text in travail. It is um, not a linear point A to point Z. This is how we're going to get there, and and it's just a smooth sailing of how God reveals God's self. It's, it's, um, it's got the voice, it's got different voices and different, you know, things that are in there that are messy, that are problematic. Uh, the only problem I have is people's interpretation of it. You've got, you've got sacrificial systems that are imbued in the Bible, and then you've got anti-sacrificial statements and it's a wrestling. It's a, um, it's a bunch of dudes, typically dudes, with different opinions about God and, and how God relates to them now. And so, of course, it's going to be messy. I, I don't have to reconcile the book of Judges or the book of Joshua with who I think God is like. I can just let it be what it is. Those people thought that then, and that's okay. I don't think they got it 100% right, and I'm okay with that. My authority is not the text itself. My authority is, you know, your own goodness, your own innate. If the incarnation's true and, you know, God resides in us, then that's my authority. Well, it, I find it really, I find it really uh, interesting that we are more than happy to point at other religions and say, well, and we can, we can look at the anthropology of their religion and say, okay, well, that was just them misunderstanding God or nature or whatever at that moment. But then we look at our Bible. And no, it's all, it's all in error. It's, it's all perfect. Um, you'd have to read it word for word, exactly how it's written. And it's just true. And I, I've never understood that. Yeah. It's, and, and that even that kind of raises the question of what do you mean by true? Like a parable right. isn't true in terms of like the way the New York times would report on some journalistic thing. Like a parable has infinite meaning that we can draw from it. And so it's like, no wonder Jesus taught in parables. There's all sorts of different layers of truth. Is Adam and Eve true? No, I don't literally believe a dude named Adam and a chick named Eve were walking around the earth and, and God walk, you know, I don't, but there's deep, deep truth in that story. There's deep, deep truth in the Cain and Abel story. I don't think there was, you know, a Cain and Abel that literally lived. And then after Cain killed Abel, Cain founded a city with, with it kind of begs the question who was in that city. If there's only four people now three, um, (laughs) so it's, but there's deep, deep truth in that story. There's, there's wonderful truth in that story. So I always laugh at the Christians who are like, is the Bible true? And it's like, how do you even answer that question? It's not a premise that I can, I, I, I can't take it on your, definition of what you mean by true and even answer that question for you. Yeah. It strikes me about uh, like Rob Bell had said one time is like, you know, if you, if you're asking me the question, whether or not Jonah was literally swallowed by a whale, I'm already bored. Mm -hmm. Like that is the least interesting question you could have asked me about that story. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I mean like the, the, the Noah's Ark story too, if you're asking, could, could Noah really put an ark together and fit all the animals on there. And how did the kangaroos hop their ass up there? I'm already like, <laughs> like if that's our conversation, right. that's our starting point. Unless you're talking about a polemic that, you know, Noah's Ark versus the Babylonian Enema Elish, then I'm interested. 
What's the differences between these right, mythologies? Right. What is said in, in the Hebrew story versus what is said in the Babylonian story? Because the two are the same story, but they're different. Now I'm interested in what you have to right. say, because now you've put me in the time and place when this was written and redacted and edited. Yeah. And what's really going on here? Now you've piqued my curiosity. Yeah, no, I'm 100% on board with that. I mean, you look at that and you wonder, you know, what, because that was... Um, most people believe that, that the, the the story of Noah's Ark and Noah's Flood was was written around the time of the Babylonian exile, right? Or at least during the Babylonian exile. And so, yeah, yeah, after after the exile, sure. So so it, it stands to reason um, that there'd be some of that in there that it would be a polemic. It'd be a you know, hey, our God's better than our, our God's better than your God. Let me show you why. Yeah. Right. I mean, right off right. the bat, I mean, <laughs> you look at that and you're like, okay, so if you're a if you're a priest or a scribe. And you're in exile, you're in a land that's foreign to you. They have their customs, they have their rituals, they have their myths. And they're saying, this is how the gods were crea- created humanity, to be slaves. Gods killed other gods, spilled their blood, tore their guts out, created earth, created humanity. And you're thinking like, no, I don't think so. So what do you write? You say, in the beginning, God spoke. That's it. God didn't kill another god. God didn't like do all this stuff. Like, how is humanity related? No, I don't think we're slaves. God made humanity in God's image. So you're, 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 you're basically saying that's not God. This is God. And right off the bat, then it's like, oh, this is interesting. This is compelling now, rather than, is it, is it creationism versus science? Is it or evolution? And you're like, oh my God, like Jesus (laughs) Christ, like I've already checked out. That is just so damn, it's so damn boring. <laughs> I, I, I used to read books, you know, and it was like, you know, apology, you know, apologists were all the rage and they, I, in some circles they still are, but, yeah. um, oh my God, that stuff bores me now. Oh like, yeah. All the proofs, all of the, all the attempted proofs of, of things that are unprovable, you know, um, negating the need for faith at all. So they're, you know, it, it just drives me nuts, but I got yeah. in trouble once you, you brought up a subject. And so it makes me think of a time I got in trouble. I quoted C.S. Lewis, which I always thought was safe. Totally um, should be. And, <laughs> yeah, it should be. I mean, he's <laughs> a, 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 a darling of the right, you know, and uh, I mean, and, and a smart guy, you know. Yeah. But, you know, we talked about this a little bit too before, but C.S. Lewis was always a lot more honest in his correspondence, or I think a lot more forthright in his correspondence than he was in his books. So in correspondence, he says, you know, essentially it's, the, it's, it's Jesus Christ alone who is the word of God. And not the Bible, right? Yeah. The Bible, if it's read correctly with the right teachers or whatever, it'll, it'll lead you to Jesus. Um, but there's more to that quote. Um, and the, the second part of that quote has to do with mythology. And the second I use the word mythology in any sort of connection to the scriptures, mm. man, it was it was a storm. So I yeah. want to talk to you about, I think that's a brilliant move uh, to speak to the power of myth. Um, yeah. And not that myth is you know, fanciful fiction, you know, but it is a way in which to, you know, a way in which we can, we can talk about truths in a larger abstract way. But what do you think about that? The power of myth or? Well, I think myth is how we tell our stories. And as Gerard points out, myth in many instances is how we paper over our victimization of that surrogate other, no matter who they are. And the beautiful thing about Mythology, especially in the scriptures, the the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures, is that that type of mythology is used, but it starts to it starts to fall apart, and it shows that falling apart. It's it's 
it, you get in the gospel and there's no paper overing who's responsible. Like God is not responsible any longer. We then go back and we put God, we put with PSA, with penal substitution, going back to atonement, what we started with, we put that back on the text, but it's not there. Rome is responsible. The, 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 you know, the, the authorities of the, the religious authorities of the day are complicit at least, but humans are responsible for the death of this innocent victim. It's obvious this person's innocent. He's not guilty of the crimes charged. And so it, it, myth is used in order to expose myth, which I think is a beautiful thing. I think so. If you want to talk about divine inspiration of the Bible, it's like it's sacrificial systems are used to expose the sacrificial systems and the futility of what they, they, they don't really accomplish what they say they're going to accomplish. And so that's when you can get, you can get to the, like some real truths about, I, I, I remember reading a, an article from Gerard um, back when he was alive. It was, are the gospels, are, are the gospels um, mythical? Are they mythology? And it's like, absolutely. And no. So there, there it's, it's, it's the, it's the formula, but it's different and it exposes myths for what they are. You know, like if you go to a classic myth of uh, Oedipus, the king, he's totally guilty of killing his dad and having sex with his mom. And he's totally guilty of the plague that comes after because of his, you know, his sins and his behavior. And in order to, for the, for the, uh, the Greek people in Thebes, in order for them to not have the plague, um, they have to kick Oedipus out of the city. And that's what happens. The minute Oedipus is kicked out of the city, the plague goes away. This is a guilty man, right? This is what myths paper over. The gospel and even, and even you know, before the gospel, I think there's a lot of gospel. There's a lot of um, exposing myth for what it is in the Hebrew Bible too. It's to say, no, our victim is actually innocent. Job is not guilty of what his friends accuse him of. And he just got a raw deal. That's it. You know, um, Joseph is, is, is not, should not be someone that the brothers try to kill. You know, the, the victim of that story ends up as the hero of the story. Um, you know, and then you get, you get to, uh, you get to Christ and it's like, it's so obvious that that is an innocent victim. This is a lynching. This is a mob lynching and he's not guilty. And, but it's in the formula of myth. Don't you find it interesting, though? I, I, I know I do that um, when we talk about in Christian circles, especially, you know, the ones that I grew up in, we still find a way to blame Job and Joseph. Of course we do. Job, Job feared God. And so when he says that which I feared has come upon me, we go, see, that's what you did. And the word of faith movement hijacks that as, hey, what you put out in the world comes back to you. He's actually to blame, even though the Bible calls him faultless and perfect. You know, God's willing to brag on him. Um, and we did the same thing. I've heard sermons preached about Joseph, and um, they find fault with Joseph, too, for being arrogant and for being whatever and causing his brothers to hate him and throw him in a pit. So yeah. um, it's like <laughs> we gloss over completely his innocence. Right. Kind of the default theology for much of humanity is right there in Deuteronomy 28. The blessed get rain on their crops, and it's wonderful, and everything's going to grow, and the wicked get dust. They get dried up. They get nothing. And Jesus basically is like, no, God is so good that he sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. It kind of is a subversion of Deuteronomy 28. And um, we go right back to thinking that. 
What did you do that your life ended up so poorly? What sins did you commit? What sins did your parents commit? Yeah, why are you blind, right? Why was exactly. You yeah, that's the assumption of the disciples, right? And he's like, y'all don't get it. <laughs> it's like, like that. sometimes shit just happens. That's exactly right. I think that's that's Brad Jerzak's theodicy is that sometimes shit happens. Right. There's a, uh, a young man that I taught in high school. Um, I know what you're thinking. High school teacher. I know, right? I influenced young people. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's, uh, he, he, I start with a chuckle, but I'm going to tell you that he just recently died. Um, and it was a tragic car accident in San Antonio. And, you know, the initial outpouring on Facebook from all of his classmates and people who knew him and loved him and was just one of, it was just horrible, you know, just tragic. He's 25 years old, shouldn't have died. Um, the second details of the accident came out. Um, and there was the hint that the driver, either he or the driver had been drinking beforehand. Man, all of that sympathy went, not all of it, a lot of that sympathy went away. Yeah. And it, it just, it strikes me as this human tendency to go, okay, that's tragic. Oh, but now, oh, no, no, no. Actually, he's partially to blame. I don't have to feel bad about that anymore. Yeah. Our sense of justice requires sometimes um, that, that somebody's now maybe being punished for, for being a bad actor. But um, h- how has your sense of, of justice then evolved? For, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting through this deconstruction thing, and I'm starting to think of it just in terms of an ongoing evolution. Right. I'm just going to constantly tear some stuff down. But how has your sense of justice or your thoughts about justice then evolved over the years? Well, I mean, I was never one to emphasize justice like the Calvinists might do. But there was still this instance where justice had to be like a debt to pay. And I I now think of and, and it was all individualistic. And now I think of things more in terms of, you know, whether you talk about God's justice, where you talk, whether you talk about social justice, which can be misconstrued, though I think the, um, the point is noble, though I think we always kind of misconstrue things when, when we're talking, and, you know, human beings do what human beings do. But I, I think more in corporate terms now. So I, I think of systems that need to be dismantled, not people. I think the people who do some of the shittiest things, I have to ask the question, what happened to them as kids? What what was their situation growing up? What's their genetics like? Did they have concussions? You know, all these things that factor into how we behave and 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 it's not so cut and dried. We're still responsible for our actions. We still have choices to make, but we're also responsible for one another as well. We're responsible for the systems that allow the rich to 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 have billions and billions of dollars and hoard it away. I mean, there's, you know, when we talk about economic justice, do I, do I think we should take all their money and and hang them up in the streets? No, but we have to dismantle the systems that allow that. Um, I think, I think when it comes to God's justice, I, I can't remove any, any attribute I say of God. I can't remove from God the fact that I truly believe God is love. And so if I want to talk in terms of wrath or punishment or correction or justice or anger, it's all in the context of love. It's not this dual-faced, I've heard Janus faced like Janus, the two-faced God of Rome. You don't, you don't get God's one face and, and then God's other face. You get God's attributes through the context that God is love. If my 10-year-old daughter messes up, I don't choose the justice card. Though I might, I might 
try to have some sort of justice to the situation, but it's always through the fact that I love her dearly. And so how much better is God than me? I hope a whole lot. Well, shit, I better be. (laughs) 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 Um, But I I mean, I, I now, I now view like, I don't even know if you'd call it the justice of, or God's justice, but so say you're walking along the street with your child and your child takes, chooses to step out into a busy sec, um, street. Uh, you don't think, you don't, you don't contemplate, you reach out, you grab their arm and you pull them back. Some might, if they're not knowing what's going on, that might look a little odd, but at the same time, I'm not going to go and, um, if my, 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 my child is misbehaving, I'm not going to go and spank them in anger and, and then say, okay, I did this for your good. You know, this hurt me more than it hurt you. All that bullshit that we say, but I I see God's justice is more of the the other side where, you know, maybe, maybe we, we've stepped out of line and he's doing something or they are doing something to save us. It's a bad analogy because I also don't think that God would, would actively like grab and pull us back. I think what it gets to is I think we we allow this kind of justice or this corporal punishment or whatever you want to call it with a connection to well but, but God is does it God punishes us out of love so I'm going to punish my child out of love well don't just don't despise the discipline of the Lord John that's that's what that's what the Bible tells you <laughs> um, let's call it what it is um, physical violence against children's abuse I don't care how in what terms Absolutely. you count it if yeah. I could go back I have one singular okay. Maybe two singular. Can you have two singular? Anyway, regrets sure. in my parenting. My kids are all grown. Um, man, I would have never laid a hand on my kids. Yeah. I would I would take everyone. And it's not like we were abusive and beat them. But the fact is they got spanked and that was abuse and we should have done it. And I would yeah. take that back. Um, and, yeah. and, and bullshit on the people who say, yeah, I got whooped, but I turned out okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that that's. Yeah, for one, would not have any of us turned out okay. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> for two, that that argument, that logic. So if we want to have a let's 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 fool around with some logic here, a reductio ad absurdum. I I could say, oh well, you know, I uh, I drank when I was pregnant, and my kid has fetal alcohol syndrome, but they turned out great. So therefore, right, like, right, like right. what's your what's your ridiculous conclusion here? Like, I mean, let's 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 separate. Uh, some anecdotes with actual science. So, so the science says don't spank your kids. Anecdotes can be all over the map, but typically, uh, spanking leads to people who are more inclined to violence. That's just what the studies show. I tell you what, in spite of me, um, my kids are raising their kids better, and I, that, uh, we've had multiple heart to hearts about. Man, I, I would take all of those back. Don't hit your kids. My daughter is like, hell, I would never. That's a bit, then, then that is, that is the most authentic Christian repentance. And I, when I, when I say repentance, I'm not talking about feeling bad for something. I'm talking about you changed your mind and then you let your kids stand on the shoulders of you. And that's what we should do for generations. It's like, we, we come before our kids, we're going to have things messed up. You know, just like we don't look back 500 years and say someone was a horrible piece of shit. And it's like, maybe they were, but you know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta have some grace for that because we hopefully become better generationally. Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, you touched on something a little bit ago, uh, when Jesus says, um, from the cross, which is, you know, always such a poignant thing that Jesus, 
forgives from the cross. He is the forgiving victim, right? We don't like Jesus, usually the forgiving victim. We like Jesus, the warrior king who comes back to slaughter people. But at the base of it is we have this Jesus who is a crucified God, as Maltman would put it, right? And he is the forgiving victim. And he says, forgive them. Why? Because they don't know what they're doing. And you've you've written a couple articles recently, um, and I I sadly have not had a chance to read them. I have them bookmarked, but um, about the issue of sin. And I kind of wanted to, I want to See if you'd give me a like the like the the, the the thousand yard view of that. Tell me what you what you uh, are talking about there. Well, I, I think I think sin has become so misconstrued and so overemphasized in the church. I I, I on the one hand, I I don't go so far as some people and say that I've never sinned. There's no such thing as sin, because I think it's a fine I think it's a fine word to describe something that's going on with human beings. I think we've gone way too far with the doctrine of original sin with Augustine and, and our emphasis on sin management. That's basically what Christianity has become. So I, I, I see sin as simply almost like, um, like an, either an ignorance or something. It's it's more of a system thing rather than a list of things that we do or don't do or a list of behaviors. And, and it's more of an ignorance and it's more of a, um, I use the example of, of Frodo in the ring, like, or, or anyone in the ring really, except for Tom Bombadil. Um, sorry, I'm going to totally geek out on Tolkien here. It's a power, <laughs> it's, a, do. it's a power over someone and it's, and it's a, and it's a wrestling with, um, I don't see sin. If you're going to stick with the Tolkien analogy as, Anytime Frodo puts on the ring or anytime this and that, I see it as the constant like pull towards something, Um, whether it's malice, whether it's racism, whether it's systems of oppression, whatever that is. And, and I just, I see, um, I see it as something that we need liberation from, not something that we need to be punished for. Well, yeah, Brad says, you know, as as he talks about sin in terms of, of, of sickness and we don't punish the sickness out of people, we heal them. No. And that's what, and that's what salvation I I thought meant in Greek. It it has a, it has a context of being healed from something, not like whatever the hell we say about (laughs) believing in Jesus or getting baptized (laughs) or whatever the hell we're saying. Yeah. You know, get out of hell free card and but there's that sense of wholeness, right? The sense of bringing, um, yeah. bringing pieces of it together. Sozo in the Greek, right? Right. So, right. Um, so in what sense do you think then, and I've used this before. I, I, I know if, I want to know if you think it's legitimate that, that Jesus's statement about sin, forgive them father. Cause they don't know what they're doing is, is, is axiomatic. I've tend, I've come to look at people in whatever I conceive of as sin um, first and foremost, as being ignorant of the fact that the things they're doing are harming others. And that's kind of what I've reduced sin to is like the things you do that injure other people. Yeah. That is so often done out of ignorance. And I get pushed back like, oh, of course they know what they're doing. And, and, it's, and it's like, yeah, they, I don't know that they do. And I certainly don't know that they know why they're doing it. What do you, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think that I would agree with you that they don't really know what they're doing doing we don't really know what we're doing we're we're so subconsciously driven we're so non-consciously driven we're um unless we're really conscious about something we're just kind of going through the motions a lot of times and and that doesn't mean that we're not then responsible for the the harm that we cause others so it's a both and it's not a binary thing so it's it's that yeah if if 
I think Bart said something and I, and I referenced him in the articles. I, if I remember correctly, because I'm also writing a follow-up to heretic that I talk about sin where it's like the people, if we really knew what we were doing, we wouldn't do it. If we really knew we were sinning, we wouldn't do it. If we truly saw things and had the faculties to see things, everyone with a totally freed will would do good, would not do the harmful or the, or the malicious. And that doesn't take away from the problem of true evil in the world, right? But if you, you know, take that, take that to its logical extremes and what you're always going to get, man, you're always going to get the, yeah, well, Hitler's name is going to pop up at some point. Um, and I would argue Hitler didn't know what the hell he was doing. He did, I mean, he, he sure, I don't, he couldn't have known why he was doing what he was doing. He could not have been that self-aware. He was reactionary in whatever he was um, and caught up in a system that fed and reinforced his biases and prejudices. And he, you know, so even on that extreme level, again, unless and until we're looking at it as some sort of excuse to go act badly and go, well, I didn't know what I was doing. No, no one's saying that. Um, but we have to get past that initial um, tendency to blame and say people in the full light of day made this choice to hurt me on purpose and therefore they should be cast out. Yeah. I just have to go back and say what external factors from others, from direct life experiences caused that to happen. Cause right. I, I mean, I I've done social work for a long time. I, I uh, spent years working in group homes and those kids, when they acted badly, you know, quote unquote, whenever, whatever they're doing, we can look at the science and say that is directly caused by some trauma in their life. Right. These kids were abused uh, physically, sexually, emotionally, neglected. A lot of them, their parents did meth when they were in, in the womb. There's a lot of trauma that is passed on intergenerationally. And we've seen from science, like, that our genetics are changed by trauma and then passed down. Wow. So it always raises the question for me of what trauma did that person have that is now impacting their life and, and not allowing them to, to see things for what they truly are. Cause I truly believe everyone is good at their core. Everyone is made in the image of God and things have fucked that up, but it hasn't, it hasn't made us either a good person or a bad person. Right. Okay. Now I can, it makes sense because uh, from my perspective, what you see is people who have developed whatever coping mechanisms they had to develop to survive. And the more horrific the trauma, the more traumatic the trauma, you see that those things get deeper and deeper and deeper ingrained in them. And, you know, I, I, I think of people that I know personally and go, okay, I, I'd like to know, like you said, I'd like to know what caused that defense mechanism to mature in you that said, okay, this is now how I deal with this problem. And it seems normal. But um, yeah, beautiful stuff, man. That's awesome. Going along that lines, I mean, our whole our whole judicial system is based on this too. Uh, we we incarcerate people for minuscule things without looking at why they did what they do or uh, what their past trauma is, and uh, then we put them into a facility that we say is going to what um, make them a better person. We are going to correct their bad behavior, but we all know that's not what that's about. We put them away. We put them in a box so we can ignore them and they're going to come out just as fucked up as they went in, if not worse. 
And then we get to look at them and say, see, we tried to help them, but they just don't want to help themselves. I mean, we can, and we can go deep into this. We can talk about, you know, the way white people are, um, dealt with, with their crimes compared to people of color with the same crime. And uh, we all know that the incarceration rate is completely out of control, but how, how do we even begin to look at correcting the way we treat the people that we deem not good for our society, that we have to put them away someplace. I mean, I, I mean, I can't speak for Nat, but I can speak for me. I think our judicial system is completely fucked up and does not do anything to help anybody move forward. I mean, what, what where do we start? This is going to sound um, really, really awful to our American um, first people. <laughs> we stop thinking. We stop thinking of ourselves as exceptional. Um, and better than because there are other countries, I think Holland, maybe some of the Scandinavian countries like Sweden and Finland and Norway that have totally redone the judicial system. Their facilities aren't just cages and boxes. It's truly a, um, a rehab first. It's truly a methodology that is not retributive. It's restorative. And the recidivism rate is through the floor. Wow. People aren't going back to these cush prisons that we look at. We look at them in, in America. We look, oh, it's a resort. People are going to, com- they're not committing crimes. Right. I mean, our rate of recidivism, I saw it when I was start. I started out my social work career in juvenile hall. These kids would come back the same damn day. <laughs> they would violate probation. <laughs> right. They'd be like, what the fuck? You left three hours ago. How are you back? <laughs> Like it doesn't work, but we have models that work and sorry, America first people. We're not great at this, but we can look to others and say that works. That helps society. People aren't going back to to prison to go get three square meals and a roof over their head because they're solving their problems and they're doing it without us as a model. We, We like to think of ourselves as like the the, the, the beacon of light in a really messed up world. We're simply not that. And we need to get the fuck over it. We're not, we're not the greatest at everything. We are great at something. I think our art is really good. Our music is really good. There's, there's a lot of things we do really good, really well. I think we've got some great culinary institutes. I think um, medical is great in America. Healthcare system sucks, but our doctors and physicians are really, really good at, at, at you know, we've got some great things going. But we're really, really poor or really mediocre at a lot of things. And uh, you mentioned race. We need to decriminalize drugs. We need to not treat um, drug addiction or drug usage uh, as, as a justice system thing. It's a mental health thing or it's a medical thing. It's not a lock them up and throw away the key thing. The fact that in America, a black man from the South can be locked up for life for smoking a joint. And I could freely light up on my front porch and have a cop walk down the street. And he can't do shit about it in California. That's messed like that. How that should anger everyone, whether you're a pothead or not. Like that should anger everyone. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's it ridiculous. Should. Well, and then shoot, you throw in the element of corporatism into that. And you, you, you have these systems that are devised to make money off the prison system. That's right. We've got private. Uh, we, we, I, I felt I dealt with this with the county. It wasn't even a, a for-profit uh, juvenile hall. But they would say to us, 
we need to fill up these beds. Otherwise, we're not going to get paid. I'm like, what the fuck do you, what do you want me to go to high school and arrest a kid? What do you want me to right. Are you serious right now? <laughs> we want to fill up these beds? Isn't the goal to keep kids out? Oh my God, it's so messed up. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, kind of what, what happened in the Jim Crow South, you know. So post-slavery, we have all these all these people who are losing their plantation workers. And what did they decide to do? The way the law read was slavery was not legal, but you could be incarcerated and then we could use prisoners as basically slave labor. So they started criminalizing stuff left and right to get people of color back on the plantation. That's it. It was just slavery 2.0. That's it. That's all it is. It becomes... It becomes like it's a it's a blessing and a curse that we move away from overt slavery. And and please don't kill me for saying I, I mean it's great that we move away from overt slavery. It becomes a curse when we don't see the subtle forms of slavery or the more subtle forms of slavery, and then we become apathetic to to these sort of things. We say, Oh, well, at least we don't have slavery in America. Yes, we do. It's called it's called the Thirteenth Amendment. It's called locking up black folks and 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 calling them criminals and then stripping them of their constitutional rights. And then we become apathetic to that. We become asleep at the wheel, and we and we see oh we've moved forward, and then so we rest on our laurels. And it's like no, we're that's not good enough. That's totally not good enough, and and it needs to be better. Well, and then we go back we go back full circle to what we talked about, which is now we stop seeing these people as innocent victims. Because they're now, quote unquote, criminals. Well, then I can sort of justify the bad. Well, you know, they should have broke the law, dude. Right. Yeah. Should have been smoking yeah. that joint. Shouldn't have been, you know, hanging on that street corner and loitering, which was what got a lot of black folks in trouble in the Jim Crow South was literally just being someplace that they shouldn't have been or didn't. Right. Um, and so but now we feel justified again because now we have a criminal that we have. Yeah, it, it, it drives me crazy. The criminal justice system is out of control. And you're right. As you were talking about the corporate side of incarceration. Uh, I actually saw Paul Young speak. Uh, he came and spoke for two days and his whole second day was just talking about the shit show that we call our, our judicial system. And, and it's cause he, he works with a lot of people on death row now. And, uh, so he's like, so we put these people on death row. Of course we give them appeal after appeal, after appeal, after appeal, which we should rightly show. But now 20 years later, 30 years later, these are completely different people. They've taken upon themselves to educate themselves, learn about whatever, you know, try to get themselves out of prison. And now we're going to look at them and go, yeah, but I still have to kill you because that's what we're going to do. And I mean, he said, we've, you know, I have not actually been able to look into this myself, but he says, we have, we have put people to death on at a specific time for a specific moment for the sole purpose that the injections were going to expire and we had to use them or we lost a bunch of money. Wow. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if that was true. I honestly wouldn't. Yeah. It wouldn't shock me. So, I mean, it, it was, it was the, like a wake up. I mean, I already knew our judicial system was bad, but it was kind of a wake up call for me to say, okay, I, I need to look into this. I need to, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, I, I've already, I've always been anti-death penalty. I've, you know, I, I've heard all that. Well, what if they, and they give you that scenario, right? They'll, they'll throw out the scenario. Someone busts into your house. They, they rape your daughter. They kill your whole family and they take everything in your house and they get away scot-free. What would you do? I was like, okay. I mean, if you're going to give me, I can't remember who said this, but if you're going to give me that ridiculous of a, of a situation, which I know no one in my life, in my personal circle, who's ever had anything that horrific happen to them. So if you're going to give me that 
crazy of a story. My answer is going to be, he comes in, I see him, I tell him about Jesus. He falls on the floor and asks for forgiveness right there. Yeah, I can be ridiculous too. I mean, I mean, yeah, if you want to be ridiculous, I'm going to be ridiculous right back. Yeah, I, I just say I, I, I kill the guy, but I'm not a model in that situation to make the system on that. I'm right, anti, right. I'm anti-violence and anti-capital punishment, but I would probably be violent to someone who did that. That That's beside the point. That doesn't mean, I mean, I could, yeah, I could turn it right back around. What if you have a son who gets accused of murder that he didn't do, and then they kill him? How you gonna, mm. And that happens way more often than the scenario you just gave me. Yeah. So, I, I mean, how, how do we how do we feel about that now? Well, and early on when I was dabbling in, you know, talking about violence, you know how you can go from one extreme to the other. And I'm like, oh, I'm, a, I'm just going to be a, an extreme pacifist. And, and, I, and, and I really would consider myself mostly a pacifist. But, you know, you start thinking about your kids. You start thinking about you know, innocent people and where you're in a, you're in a position to, to intervene if something's going on and you, am I, am I, can I live with myself standing by and watching something happen? So, but I don't spend a lot of time entertaining a bunch of hypotheticals. I don't know what I would do. I do know that if we take enough guns out of the system, we take enough of that stuff off of the table, it won't be our first knee jerk reaction. Yeah. Well, and, and honestly, like, this is why I distinguish in from the blood of Abel, I distinguish between force and violence. Like, I've laid hands on kids a lot. Right. Like when you, when you work in a group home and kids are throwing down and, and you know, girls are taking off their earrings and shit. Like, you use force, but we're also trained in, in um, you know, we call it TCI training. It's therapeutic crisis intervention. You are trained for the first 85% on how uh, on your training how how to defuse a situation nonviolently, creative ways to do it and then and then it gets to the point where okay we're gonna have to put hands on kids to to prevent it and no kid ever got really hurt when we did it people got banged up people got bruised you know i rolled an ankle one time got my nose busted by a kid headbutting but that's the extent of it and so i, I would consider myself a pacifist with with a different definition than someone like Clay Shaborn, or uh, Shane Clay, Clay Shaborn, Shane Claiborne, you yeah. know, who's, you know, I've heard Love that guy. <laughs> yeah. 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 And because I, I mean, I, I've worked practically in the field. Like it's, you're going to put hands on people to prevent violence. And, and that's not a bad thing. But if we're going to talk about all this kind of stuff and violence and what we're going to do, maybe we should uh, be a little more creative and, and do some research on how, how are we going to talk someone down? You know, there's that funny meme about like a guy with a knife, he's butt ass naked in Seattle. And there's like, what's a social worker going to do? And I'm like, that's a Tuesday, bro. Like I've, <laughs> like I've dealt with, <laughs> I've dealt with that shit more times than I'd care to like to remember. Like, and most of the time it ends without hands on. <laughs> like don't discredit social right. workers. Like we're actually really good at what we do. Well, and that's what it, it, it bothered me so much. And, you know, when, when the whole defund the police thing became a thing, um, it, it was, ah, I think they just chose, I think, think they chose to describe this poorly, you know, uh, as though taking money from the police force was a good idea. No, rather than diverting some money and saying, listen, what we don't need is three or four more armored, you know, armored carriers, you know, these APCs and whatever, where what we don't need is to further militarize the police. What we need is to equip them with people who can actually help them defuse those situations on the street. 
And that's the thing for me. It's like, if you're pro-police, you should be all for diverting resources for other people to do what the job that police are not supposed to be doing. They should not be dealing with all, a lot of the shit that they're dealing with. And a part of the problem is that they're under-trained and they're, and they're dealing with things that, that is, is, is like in a, in a different niche field. Like they should, social worker, it should, it should not be like social workers or police. It should be like, no, how about working hand in hand more often, having better training for this, and then we won't have problems. Uh, I mean, also, you know, how about we not hire racist cops, you know, shit like that. That's also a problem too. Well, there's, there's that. I mean, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> but, yeah, there's that. I mean, whatever. But, I mean, it, maybe you wouldn't have the situation where uh, the videos, uh, we've all seen a lot of these, but there's one that really sticks in my brain and kind of haunts me um, is of a, of a, an autistic man sitting in the middle of a street, having a complete dissociative breakdown uh, while a cop shoots him because the social worker is saying, no, 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 he's not a threat. He's, and because they perceived a threat in that moment, this guy who has, anyway, it, it, it haunts me. I think about it, you know? He has no training in working with autistic folks. No, like, not I've, had an, I've had an autistic client for almost, well, between three and four years now. It, it's, they're totally capable of doing some great things. Sure. But they, they see the world differently. Right. And unless you understand that, like you're not going to know what the hell's going on. No. And so that's that. So I, I just wish, I guess, you know, sometimes it comes down to branding, you know, defund the police is an awful slogan. I, I think I agree. I mean, you're, 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 you're like, you're cutting off your nose to spider face to quote Michael Scott. I love Michael Scott. Spider face always gets a bad rap. That poor girl with her nose cut off. But all right, hey John, why don't you wrap this up for us? Let Mister uh, Mister De Stefano um, or De Stefano, however you want to say it, man. Like yeah, oh yeah, De Stefano is fine. It's uh, we pronounce it De Stefano, but yeah. Well, we want to be correct, so it's De De Stefano. Someone called me uh, one time. Uh, some some fundamentalist troll called me Matthew Dysentery. I was like, that's, <laughs> wow. that's not wow. even an attempt, bro. Like, come on, man. That's not even, I mean, come on, man. You could at least like be like, like play with the word stuff in the middle there and be like, yo, it's D stuff. I mean, D clever, stuff. but <laughs> D, so Mr. D Stefano, uh, man, um, <laughs> I'm inside my head about your name now. I'm sorry. Um, always, always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I hope we can do it again sometime. Well, um, uh, I, I know you got. I know you got some stuff coming out. Some new books coming out soon. Uh, your hip hop album just dropped, which uh, is awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, everybody needs to go get that. I will definitely link to all of all of your stuff. He's like the white Eminem. This guy. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> so. Um, other than that, is there anything else you'd like to uh, just uh, let everybody know about before we uh, end this? Well, I mean, you know, I got so much stuff going on. It's probably best just to like bookmark my site all set free. And there I have, uh, <clears throat> I got a link to my Pathios blog and, and the podcast that I do and all the books that come out go on there. So uh, yeah, and my social media accounts are on there and everything. So if you just link there, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I haven't really fucked with TikTok too much, but I'm I've been told I'm supposed to that I'm following you on oh, it. Oh, I know. I, I signed up, <laughs> but I haven't done, I haven't done anything. So I'm like, this, this to me seems like Bootsy. I, maybe I'm an old man, but this, like I see these videos yeah, and I'm just yeah. like, 
this shit just seems cornball, man. I, I don't know. You don't want to be like rolling down the street on, on a <laughs> yeah. long board with, you know, yeah. sipping your sun kissed or whatever. And, oh, or no, got, I'm sorry, it was cranberry juice. Cranberry juice. The, the ocean yeah, spray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That guy made a lot of money off that, dude. That's what dude, you're, you're leaving one, all that money on the table. One stupid video <laughs> like that, man. <laughs> I've been grinding for like six years. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? This? <laughs> this guy hops on a skateboard and suddenly he's on Ellen or something. Like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> it's a weird world we're living in, man. It is a weird world, man. <laughs> All right. Well, check out Matt because he's the boom. Yeah. Again, I just want to thank you for coming on. And uh, I, I, I love what you, what the content you're putting out. Um, and everybody needs to go and check out your stuff. Um, it makes you think. And, and that's what I really appreciate about what you're doing. So thank you, man. Well, thanks, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me, gents. All right, man. Love you, brother. Love you. All right. Cheers. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash this is not church where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.